This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. So today's topic is interesting, and I might even find it controversial. The reason I wanted to bring this is one of the fundamentals of humanism is humanism is rational, and we support science and science tempered by human values. I've worked on campaigns involving you know, clinical trials and medical ethics a little bit when I was in the UK. And today, Jordan Wadden wants to talk about, well, should we listen to people more in medicine? Should we take almost anecdotes more? And when we talk about science, we often talk about using clinical trials as a better standard than anecdotes. But is there a place to listen to those stories? And when we do a clinical trial, are we missing important data and information? Hopefully I'm not mischaracterizing his work, or else we'll have an entirely different topic. Joseph Jordan Wadden is a PhD student in the Department of Philosophy at UBC. He described what we were talking a bit before, and he's almost a bit subversive. He uses a phrase, interdisciplinary, which is not a popular word in philosophy because you tend to just sit there and think about things, but he wants to challenge philosophers and he wants to challenge medical ethicists. So he works on bioethics, philosophy of medicine, and access issues in healthcare. And so please welcome Jordan. So yeah, my name is Jordan Wadden. I am a PhD student at the University of British Columbia in the Department of Philosophy, where, uh, as Ian said, I work on bioethics, applied ethics, and the philosophy of medicine. Um, in today's talk, the testimony and its place in healthcare, um, this is basically the groundwork and the frame with, with which I do my current work. So it's, it's not necessarily going to go too in-depth into my work, just because that's really technical and I don't want to bore anyone. Um, but I'm also going to be covering some pretty important topics uh, as, as best I can. So if you have any questions on things that are related to this um, in the question period, that's totally fine. It doesn't have to be directly on whatever I talk about. Um, and I want to say something about why this is an important topic to talk about before I actually go into anything. And that's because generally um, everyone is going to have some sort of contact with healthcare usually once a year, once every two years. And especially as populations get older or as new uh, diseases or illnesses start to, start to pop up, um, we're seeing that there's more and more contact with healthcare. More and more people are taking their health seriously um, and more and more people are getting access to healthcare. So starting to think about how, what the patients are going to be saying to the doctors is something that we need to, to take seriously and start considering what are the implications of. So to start off, I just want to say a few things about some Canadian healthcare statistics. Um, the first one is from 2016, and that's only because the 2017 statistics haven't been released yet. So in 2016, 73.8% of Canadians over the age of 12, so roughly 22 million, access to doctor. And now I have an asterisk next to doctor here because that's going to be different from uh, a family physician. So a doctor is someone who is working in the ER, is a specialist, so say internal medicine, um, it's a general hospital visit for like a broken bone. So 
doctor in this sense is someone who doesn't necessarily have a file on you, um, or if they do, they don't necessarily see you all that often, so they don't know much about you. Now to contrast uh, against this one, in 2017, roughly 26 million Canadians over the age of 12 had a regular healthcare provider. Now healthcare providers are those who do have a relationship with you and do have files on you and can like email or call if something goes wrong with a, with a blood test that a doctor has given you. So this is a family physician, gynecologist, et cetera, et cetera. In 2017, 19 million Canadians over the age of 12 self-reported that they have very good or excellent physical health. And in 2017, uh, roughly 21 million Canadians in the same age group said that they had very good or excellent mental health. And these are self-described, so it's not necessarily whether they are in these categories, it's how they feel. Like, if this person feels like they're in good health despite um, maybe needing a walker, then, they're, then it's relativized to their age. Or if someone feels like they have good mental health despite uh, having one or two months of depression every two years, then they're still allowed to put themselves into this category. And now despite how a good number of Canadians are accessing healthcare and say that their health is good, we're actually ninth out of 11 in our similar country peer group for our healthcare. So our peer group is the UK, Australia, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Switzerland, Germany, Canada, France, and the United States. So now, up until Canada, all of those countries are in order um, above the 11 country average. And then the last three, Canada, France, and the United States are below this average. And how can the average be so high um, and only three countries be below it? That's because all of those European countries are actually very, very similar on the graph, just slightly going down. And then you hit the average and Canada, France, US. So it starts to slope off. And if we have such good statistics, how come we are ninth? So that's, that's to start to frame this, this talk. Um, and one more thing on these statistics is that Health statistics for Canada are actually incredibly difficult to find, even for researchers like myself. Um, now you can go into Google and you can search up Canada health stats and you'll find several websites, including government websites. But when you actually click on those reports, a lot of them will say 2005 as the most recent. And that's really outdated for health. Maybe for other sciences or for social sciences that would be considered regular, but for health, you kind of want every single year to, to match trends and see what's going on. Now, to continue with, with the setup, uh, I want to talk about how healthcare is framed um, in North America, in Europe, in Australia. And this is under a framework called evidence-based medicine. And now this might sound a little funny, like what was medicine before it was evidence-based? Um, this is a poor choice of names, but it's Canadians who named this out of McMaster in the 90s, so we're just gonna accept it because it's a Canadian invention that we're, that we're sending to the world. Um, but essentially, evidence-based medicine is the explicit and intentional integration of clinical evidence and clinical expertise. Now, what exactly does that mean? Depending on who you ask, it's going to have different definitions, but three characteristics are usually in all of their definitions. And these are the best research evidence is being used, 
clinical expertise is being used and patient values are being seen as important. So what are these three characteristics? Clinical, uh, sorry, best research evidence is what is clinically relevant in uh, relation to whatever you're treating. So that's gonna be the scientists at universities or at hospitals who are running tests on what's gonna happen with blood coagulation in leukemia patients with this drug. Um, and the best uh, clinical evidence is going to be the amalgamation of all of that research into the knowledge base that the doctor has access to. Clinical expertise is going to be the past experience used by this doctor to assess and identify the unique health needs of an individual. So a good example of this is uh, any, if you speak to any nurse who's been working in the field for a while, um, they generally start to say that because they have to do a check on a patient roughly once an hour, and the checks uh, tend to take a lot of time when you begin, it starts to speed up and almost becomes like a sixth sense for them. So this is their, their clinical expertise, helping them move along a lot faster than someone who's new. Whereas in other fields, even if you have a lot of experience, you're not necessarily moving as, like not necessarily moving much faster when you're more experienced. And the patient values, uh, this is gonna be the locus, this is gonna be the one that I'm focusing in on for the rest of this talk. And that's the unique preferences, concerns, and expectations of patients in any clinical encounter. So what you as a patient are bringing to the meeting with your doctor or with your family physician, um, and what you expect to get out of this. So if you go in sick, you're expecting to come out with some sort of either um, thing to try or a medication or at least some more information than you went in with. That could be one of your expectations. And now evidence-based medicine uses a hierarchy of types of evidence. And anything that's not on the, this hierarchy isn't considered good evidence for, for medicine. So at the, it's kind of like a pyramid. And at the top of this pyramid is going to be randomized control trials. Uh, they're randomized because uh, the doctor or the researcher doesn't know who's going into what branch of the trial, the placebo or the, the actual intervention. Um, neither does the patient. It's only after the fact that they start to figure things out, but they still don't know which patients were in which necessarily, depending on how you're setting up the trial. Some trials you will know which patients after the fact. Um, and it's controlled because it's being put together with a placebo and the intervention. So this is seen as the gold, or some even call it the platinum standard for, for medical research, because it's completely, ran, or completely, with air quotes, uh, randomized, and there shouldn't be any um, sort of intervention by biases or whatnot. There still are, but the view is that there aren't. Now in the middle of this pyramid are gonna be observational studies, and these are, pretty self-descriptive. Observational studies are when you look at a group, you look at another group, and you start to make some correlations between them. And then the bottom is gonna be mechanistic reasoning. And mechanistic reasoning just simply means it is looking at all the different factors that are going on in the body and how drugs or interventions are working on those factors. So if you're looking at a heart medication, the mechanisms that they're going to be considering are what is the function of the heart before the medication, how does the medication change the activity of the heart? Is it a muscular thing? Is it an electricity thing? Um, is it a fat thing? How is it working? And then the function of the heart afterwards. And this is seen as the bottom rung. So now where there's gonna be problems is that these patient values and the expert uh, opinion that, was, that I said were in those three 
pieces of, of the descriptions of evidence-based medicine both fall into that mechanistic rung, that least respectable but still kind of useful piece of evidence. So in healthcare interactions, um, patients are usually interrupted or what medical professionals call redirected within the first 18 to 23.1 seconds of an interaction. Um, this number has remained consistent over the past 30 years in various studies and is noted as a problem, but no one is working on it as a problem. And now, it's pretty difficult to talk about even the symptoms of the common cold in 18 seconds, let alone if you're trying to talk about fibromyalgia or a cancer worry or endometriosis, um, any of the more complicated diseases or illnesses, it's gonna be very hard to get in. And now, when I say redirect or interruption, I'm not meaning to ask a question and to let the person continue talking. Usually this redirection is to start di the diagnosis, to start that process. So these healthcare professionals have been trained that after about 20 seconds, they know everything that they need to know on this evidence-based model. If a pro professional doesn't follow the evidence-based model and they follow something else, they might let a longer amount of time go by. But generally, in the medical schools, this is what happens, be it intentional or unintentional in their training. However, there are several studies that have shown that doctors who allow a patient to fully convey everything that they want to say end up returning more evidence-based results than their counterparts who redirect. So clearly there's, some, there's something evidential in what the person is saying to the doctor. There's some piece of evidence in their statements that is causing this difference between more evidence-based results and redirection cases that don't have these results. And this could be chalked up to lay knowledge causing nuance for, for the researchers and medical know-how, despite it usually being ignored. So examples of how lay knowledge has affected um, medical interventions and medical research are the Women's Health Movement and the AIDS Act Up groups in the 70s and the 80s, where doctors thought one way, but these groups of individuals who are all uh, belonging to one category or multiple uh, subcategories said, no, you're not listening to us. No, this isn't working for us. Uh, this is what we need. So let's get into, let's dive a little further into this and start talking about patient testimony itself. Now, testimony is a bit of a um, technical term. On the next slide, I'll talk about what exactly testimony means. So if it seems super technical at the moment, don't worry. But the current implementations of evidence-based medicine don't consider patient testimony to count as evidence. So patient values might be in that mechanistic reasoning lowest rung, but their testimony, what they're saying, isn't even on this triangle hierarchy. It's just words they're saying, it's conversations that they're saying, and it's not really gonna play into the diagnosis. And it's considered this way because it isn't given by, um, it isn't given in expert terminology, so patients usually aren't using words like endometriosis. They're saying something is wrong in my stomach, um, which could be many, many things. Um, and it's coming directly from the source. So it's not coming from a third party or from an quote-unquote unbiased uh, machine. So this bias, this, uh, th this bias can, can start to factor in where the doctor thinks, oh, this person just wants a diagnosis for X, Y, Z reasons. Um, they're not actually sick. 
or the doctor might think that they are uninformed. So this patient is from a rural community and they're coming to a city hospital. Clearly they don't understand because they work on a farm, they don't know anything about medicine, so they don't know what's actually going on, we'll run some tests and figure it out. Or they can be seen as baseless. So someone might Google their symptoms, they might go to WebMD, and they say this to the doctor, and the doctor's like, ooh, you went to WebMD? Did it tell you you were gonna die? Yeah, we're gonna fix this, we're gonna go with something else, we're gonna run some tests. Um, and what's interesting with this testimony part is that even doctors, when they become patients, their testimony isn't considered on this hierarchy either, despite all of their medical training. And when it is considered as some sort of evidence, at best it's considered mechanistic at the bottom. So if there's any information that comes from an observational study or any information that comes from a randomized control trial, that would say otherwise to what the doctor is currently expressing, then their testimony should be ignored, is what the training says. So I think that this is problematic and I think that patient testimony should be considered as evidence because we are the ones who live with our bodies and doctors tend to maybe only see us for 20 minutes at a time and maybe they only see us once every two months if we're, if we're chronically ill or once a year if we're not chronically ill. Whereas we are living with our symptoms, we are living with how our body feels for most of the year, um, all of the year really because we are the ones living with it. So even though there's no expert terminology here, we still have a little bit better understanding of what's going on. We just don't know how to express that in medical terms or don't necessarily know the medical causations. So because I'm a philosopher, uh, I'm clearly going to go through a little bit of philosophy here, and I'm sorry if this bores a few of you. Uh, it tends to happen even in philosophy classes. So, um, so to start, I want to talk about philosophical testimony. This is where I'm going to say what exactly testimony is. And it's not what you might expect when you hear the word testimony. It's not putting your hand on a book in a court of law, swearing under oath. Testimony is just any interaction between two people. Or more generally, it's any interaction between something that can express information and something that can receive information. So. There are people who work on testimony, like Elizabeth Fricker, who says that a stop sign can convey testimony. And this is because the stop sign is telling you this is a place where you ought to stop. And if you don't, there's going to be some repercussions. So it's giving reasons as to why you should stop. You don't have to. You can drive through the stop sign. Enough people do um, and shouldn't. But this stop sign could convey a testimony for Fricker. She also gives an example uh, about how if she wanted to fly to Australia, she's relying on the testimony of the pilot over the PA saying that we are landing in Australia. She's relying on the people at the gates who are saying this is the gate to go to Australia. And that even if she was to buy her own plane, she would be relying on the testimony of the map maker and the compass maker saying that the map is saying this is Australia, this is the direction you go in, and the compass is saying that yes, this is the right direction to fly. So she says that we are so socially dependent on each other that testimony is in everything. Now this is very general and there's a lot of problems with this, especially when you're getting into inanimate objects giving testimony. So I wanna dial it back, give it a more conservative uh, definition and we're just gonna go with it's a speaker and a hearer. 
Now that could be a speaker like myself and an audience like you, or it could be a one-on-one -on -one interaction between a speaker and a hearer. But, and that's what you're gonna find more often happens in healthcare, is you're either speaking to, uh, between yourself and the receptionist, or yourself and the doctor themselves, yourself and the nurse, so this is, the, this is the type of interaction we're gonna take for testimony. And now, not all phrases that you say to someone are going to be testimonial. So testimony, as I was saying, is a telling that something is the case and not a telling to do something. So it's gonna be what philosophers call propositional uh, statements. So for example, if I was to say to my dog, Bailey, sit, I'm giving her a command, I'm not giving her any testimony. She's not able to take anything from this and gain new knowledge. She's not able to take anything and reason with this. She's just being told to do something. And if I was to ask a question, hey, is it warm in here? I'm also not giving any reason to uh, gain new knowledge or any reason to uh, be able to work with to create new, new knowledge on your own. Testimony is something that can create knowledge uh, if it is to count as evidence. And it, it, so in this case, I would give you something that you could then either synthesize with knowledge that you already had, or you would get knowledge directly from that piece of testimony that I gave. So, um, yeah. And testimony, in this case, this interaction between people, is often the best evidence that we have to go on uh, in our daily lives. And a lot of people don't necessarily realize this until you start thinking about it. So for example, um, if you turn on the news and they, the anchors start talking about what's happening in Europe or in Africa or even in our own backyard, you're accepting testimony and you're accepting it as evidence to create knowledge. You're taking what these anchors are saying as truth and you're believing it. And you're taking that they're saying it as justification. So you fit all of the requirements for, for philosophical knowledge here. And it's purely from someone expressing something to you through voice. They haven't given you any sources, and when they do on televised news, at least, it's not the best sources. Um, you also get testimony when you're talking with friends, when they say, oh, um, this is the time of the party and we're going to go uh, about a half hour early, or this is where this event is happening in the city. That's all testimonial and you're taking it as knowledge. You're, you're going to start acting with that information instead of questioning or scrutinizing it or trying to run a randomized control trial among all your friends to see who's saying the right things. So testimony is big. And as I've been hinting at, it's going to form, if it's evidence, which I think it is, it's going to form knowledge. So this means we need to go into what philosophy considers knowledge. In its most basic form, knowledge is justified true belief. Something is true if it actually is the case in the world. It's justified if you have reasons for believing it is the case in the world. And uh, it's believed, this one's pretty self-explanatory, uh, if you believe that it is the case. Now, many philosophers have started to think that justified true belief isn't enough. There's either something missing or we've got the wrong framework. So, just, so justified true belief is no longer the standard for knowledge. It's now JTB plus. And that plus is going to be some sort of condition. Um, if you're interested, the first of these is the Gettier cases. Um, I won't go into those because I personally dislike them. But it's a good place to start if you're wondering about what philosophical knowledge might be. So this plus condition, this some additional condition, can be an accuracy requirement. And that is how close it is 
to the real world versus any theoretical world you could think of. It could be a safety or a sensitivity um, requirement, and these are going to be forms of, of knowledge that don't necessarily rely on the justification piece. They're just, it's still there, but they're going to more think about whether it's true and whether it's believed and how that lines up with the real world. It starts to get really complicated. But essentially, how I'm saying testimony is going to form knowledge is because it's going to be, uh, it's going to be something that causes you to believe something. It's going to be something that is at least close to truth. So the regular JTB might not work for this part. And it's going to be something that's justified because the, the person who's saying it is giving you reasons. Or you can draw reasons from what they're saying. And knowledge can also be probabilistic. Probabilistic just means that you have a degree of belief to whatever percent. So if the, the easiest way to think about this is a weather forecast. When they say there's a 20% chance that it'll rain tomorrow, that's a probabilistic belief. It's you believe that it's going to rain to 0.2 degrees. Um, and this starts to resemble scientific knowledge. When you take a blood test, um, when you get the results, it's going to say yes or no. But when the doctor gets the results, it's going to say something like, there's an 80, 85% chance that this is the case, so treat it as if it is the case while we run further tests. So there's going to be some probabilities in their assessments as well. So if testimony is going to count as evidence, it helps that it works in a probabilistic way. So then how do testimony and knowledge end up lining up with each other? If they don't line up with each other, then this whole thing falls apart here, and I can go home. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm saying that it lines up because of this justified true belief plus a condition. I haven't quite decided what this condition is. I don't know if that's a focus that I think is quite important, because I focus more on the applied side of philosophy than the theoretical side. And I know eventually epistemologists will give me that condition and I can just start incorporating it into my work. Now, knowledge can be challenged. And when it's challenged in philosophy, this is called giving a defeater. A defeater is just what it sounds like. It is defeating your knowledge and replacing it or removing it. Now, if testimony can give knowledge, it can also be defeated with the two main ways that defeaters come about in philosophy. The first one of these is an undermining defeater, and that is consistent with whatever is the case, but it removes your reasons for believing that, that case. So an example of this would be, say, last week the events page for the BC Humanists um, shows someone else's name and someone else's talk um, instead of my own for, for today. So you now have an undermining defeater. Am I going to be the one talking? Well, it looks like no, even though it might still be consistent with the case that I am, and it was just a mistake in how the page updated, some sort of tech glitch. But you don't have any justification for it being a tech glitch. All you know is that it doesn't say that I'm presenting, even though I might still be. You have an undermining defeater here. Now the next type is a rebutting defeater. And these give direct reasons for disbelieving that something is the case. So an example would be if last night you all got an email saying that today was canceled. So the website would still say that I'm the one presenting. Um, you'd still have that in your calendars or however else you keep track of things. But this email late last night would say today's canceled. And that, that directly refutes whether or not I'm presenting. It directly refutes whether or not you're even meeting today. So that's something that you would need to find uh, a significant new amount of information to then, uh, to then defeat the defeater and come and, and arrive 
today. It gets really complicated because you can start defeating defeated defeaters. Philosophy likes to string things together that are all the same word, kind of like the sentence buffalo, 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 how many times do you do that that you see online. Um, but yeah, so testimony can be defeated in these, in these ways, and I've tried to give these examples um, of how. But testimony can also be misunderstood. If I was to go to my family doctor and I was really, really not awake yet and I was kind of slurring my words a little bit, um, I might say my eye hurts. And while I'm trying to say my eye hurts, she might hear my thigh hurts. I'm going to get very confused if she starts looking at my legs. And she's going to get very confused at my confusion because she just heard thigh, but I was saying I. So that's a fun little example that I give. But testimony can be misunderstood for many reasons. It can be your background information is different than the other person, so they take what you said to mean something differently. It can be a result of language barriers. It can be a result of socioeconomic barriers. But it is something that we needed to consider. But any other form of evidence uh, is going to have a, a layer of misunderstanding as well. It's not just a testimonial thing. Testimony just seems to be the target for this because it's speech acts instead of something that's written down. Um, and last, lastly, with this connection between testimony and knowledge, before I move off of this theoretical side, I promise, uh, is that you can testify something that you don't believe, and it can form knowledge in the person who hears it. This might sound very strange, but an example of this would be a young earth creationist who is teaching uh, an elementary school class about the theory of evolution because she is required to by provincial law. She, being a young earth creationist, does not believe that evolution is, a, uh, is scientifically accurate, but her students, who are being given reasons for this true thing and then are believing it, are forming knowledge based on this theory of evolution despite her not believing it when she testifies. So that starts to run into some problems. Um, but I'm not going to discuss those at the moment. We can discuss those during questions if you are so inclined. What I want to do now that I've set up all this um, theoretical side is go through some cases so that I can show how testimony in healthcare might actually look. And these are from a recent paper of mine that is as of yet unpublished, so I can't go into too many details as much as I would love to, so I'll try to hint as best as I can. Um, so my first example is the allergy test. That's what I've, that's what I've called it. Uh, there's going to be two different agents here, Layla, who is the patient, and Dr. Zhang, who is the doctor. So Layla is a 20-something-year-old woman. She is healthy. She's been seeing Dr. Zhang since she was young, and she is working in UBC's, one of UBC's museums or archives, it doesn't quite matter the case. Um, now she's recently noticed that, uh, I guess I should preface this because I'm using names. Uh, these names are made up. <laughs> um, since I'm talking healthcare, I should probably be more careful with my confidentiality statements. <laughs> these names are false, they're, they're fake. Um, but these are cases that could or might have happened. So Layla is, Whenever she's working in the, the Rare Books archive or in the um, basement of the museum, she's noticing that she's starting to break out into highs and that she's having some trouble breathing. But on days where she's doing computer work or leading tours or days where she's not working, she doesn't notice any of these symptoms. So she goes into Dr. Zhang's office and says, listen, I think I 
need an allergy test because this is happening, this is happening, and it's only happening in this circumstance. In this case, she is testifying, she is giving reasons for Dr. Zhang to believe this true thing that is happening to her. So she's fitting this, uh, this knowledge paradigm. She's a credible patient because uh, she is telling the truth here. And she's trustworthy because Dr. Zhang has known her for a very long time. So in this case, it seems like her testimony is the only evidence that's needed. Once you have this, you can start to move on and order the allergy test and then see what that results in. So now example two, the Googler. It's Layla and Dr. Zhang again, except this time Layla has Googled her symptoms before going into the doctor. Um, this is not a problem, except Layla, instead of saying, I think I have this condition, and th in this one we're going to change it from an allergy to endometriosis, which is a condition that affects menstrual cramps, it gives bloating and hives, and it makes it, if you have it for too long, it can cause you to become infertile. So Layla, wanting to have children, is worried that this is going to be the case. And again, Googling is not a problem, except that Layla, instead of saying, I think I have endometriosis, she is adamant that she has it and she wants to be diagnosed for it. Now, Layla is still trustworthy because she's known Dr. Zhang for most of her life, but she's no longer credible because she's not accepting that this might not be the case. She's not accepting what the doctor might be saying. So while her testimony can count as evidence here, and the doctor might want to start looking into endometriosis, you're going to need other types of evidence as well. So they might need evidence from an STI test or from a UTI test, because endometriosis, when it starts, can have very similar symptoms to gonorrhea or to a UTI. Third case, the new patient. Again, Layla and Dr. Zhang, except this time, Layla has just moved to Vancouver um, to work at the museum. She uh, realizes that in her excitement to come work at the museum, she forgot to transfer her file from her old doctor to Dr. Zhang's office. And she's about to run out of Ritalin uh, tonight. So she needs uh, an emergency prescription. She goes in to see Dr. Zhang, and Dr. Zhang isn't quite sure what she should do because Layla is a new patient and she's in her young, she's in her, uh, young 20s. So for all Dr. Zhang knows, she's just going to start selling the Ritalin to her classmates since that is something that a lot of university students will do. So Layla is credible because she could bring in a past prescription receipt or she, um, she is still saying something that is true despite not having any additional evidence, but she's not gonna be trustworthy in this situation because there is no relationship between Dr. Zhang and Layla. So in this case, while still evidential, you're going to need a lot more than the first two cases to start making a diagnosis, but it's still evidential. It's still going to steer the, the conversation to what can be done. Maybe Dr. Zhang can give an emergency five-day prescription on the condition that she receives the file, um, and that if she doesn't receive the file, then she knows that Layla is not trustworthy and probably is not credible and might even reject seeing her in the future. Things can start being, things can start being built from this point. Now the last one um, is the possible addict, and this one is the tough one for my view of testimony, mainly because I'm saying that we should count patient testimony as evidence, but there's also uh, an issue with opioids at the moment, especially out here in Western Canada. So how am I going to re reconcile this? In this case, Layla has known Dr. Zhang only for a few months. 
Um, she had a, a severe back injury and surgery on it, uh, where Dr. Zhang was the operating physician. And she's now run out of her, her opioids. Um, her pain should be gone, but it isn't. She now has chronic pain. And she goes back to Dr. Zhang asking for another prescription because she is in chronic pain. Now, because they have only known each other for a few months, Dr. Zhang can't tell if Layla is trustworthy or not. So, and because it is uh, opioids, most doctors will err on the side of not trustworthy. And we also don't know if Layla is going to be credible here because this is a short-term thing and it's with chronic pain. And a lot of what's happening with the, with the opioid addiction crisis is that people are saying that they have chronic pain when they really don't. And they're not pointing to something that is true in the world. So it might be believed and it might be justified, but it might not actually be true. So in this case, she doesn't fit either of these criteria. I still want to say that it, her statements count as evidence, but it's not very good evidence. It's enough to think about what might happen, but you're going to need to run a lot of tests, have a lot of conversations, have a lot of other pieces of evidence to back up this claim before you act on it. But that it still can be in, incorporated in as evidential. Um, this is a case that I would say not to act on without a large corpus of evidence to also back it up and that it coheres with. But now, Let's pretend that regardless of which of those four cases we're in, Dr. Zhang dismisses Layla. Dr. Zhang just says, listen, you're a patient. You don't necessarily know what's going on here. Uh, we're going to run tests instead. We're not going to listen to what you're saying just because I think you're biased, as I was saying on one of the first slides is a possibility. Or I think in the Googler case that it's unbased. Like there's no real reason for you to think this just because of a Google search. So we're, we're getting into this evidence-based model where the testimony is no longer counted. What this can do, uh, sorry, um, what this dismissed testimony occurs from is many different reasons. So a lack of trust. So as two of the cases that I outlined uh, demonstrate, misjust or mis bleh, misjudged credibility, um, like two others uh, outlined. And misjudged credibility can go in two different ways. You can give someone excess credibility that harms them. So, when, so if you were to buy into the stereotype, all Asians are good at math, that can harm someone. Um, even though you're, you're supposedly bolstering them, you're not actually doing so. But credibility can also go in the opposite direction. It can be a deficit. Uh, and a good example of this that's relevant to the times is mansplaining, especially if it's about a rather simple topic where the man is explaining it to the woman, even though she, anyone of her uh, level of intelligence would be able to get it and his level of intelligence would be able to get it. He still thinks that for whatever reason she is unable to and explains it to her. Or sometimes as what happens a lot in academia and what a lot of the literature on this uh, says is where men who have no experience are then explaining a researcher's research back to her as if she doesn't understand it. She's the one who wrote it, guys. Um, so this is a credibility deficit. You're saying that she is not credible, even though she is. And now both of these pool into something called epistemic injustice. Um, an epistemic injustice is a wrongful credibility ass assessment or a wrongful trust assessment, and it's something that ends up harming an individual. So if it's a one-off case that doesn't actually cause any harm, 
it's not going to be an epistemic injustice. But if it's something that continuously occurs or is based in racism, homophobia, transphobia, all the other lists of phobias that aren't actually fears, um, then it's going to be something that is epistemically unjust. You're challenging their knowledge, saying that their knowledge isn't justified. Testimony can also be dismissed where ability is involved um, because there's a fear of disability in society, especially if, uh, as what I work on uh, when I talk about disability is non or less visible disabilities. So these are things like fibromyalgia or uh, a club foot or something that you wouldn't necessarily notice right away, but if you were to spend some time, you might see it or you might not see it. It might be completely invisible, but still disabling. And if you're interested in this kind of a topic, one of my friends had a TEDx talk. His name is Joel Michael Reynolds, on, and the talk was on trans ability. And this is basically the idea that uh, all of us, without exception, at some point in our lives will be disabled. It's not a matter of if we will be disabled, it is a matter of to what extent. Um, so if you're interested in this fear of disability, that's a good thing to look up. It's easily accessible on YouTube, about 13 minutes long. Um, another reason that testimony can be dismissed, besides the bias and, dis and besides the fear, is that it's a concern regarding the justice of cheating the system. And this goes back to my chronic pain example. So someone is cheating the system um, to get opioids that they could then sell for whatever reason instead of working or instead of um, whatever source of income that they could have, or instead of even treating themselves and they just care about money instead of their pain. Um, cheating the system can also be uh, used on the Ritalin case, where Layla might not actually have ADHD and she is just selling it to other students, pretending that she's working at the museum. So this is a real concern that a lot of doctors end up having, especially in those last two cases that I outlined. Now with all of these dismissed testimonies, um, testimonial breakdown ends up changing the exchange between speaker and hearer from a subject-subject to a subject-object uh, exchange. It's no longer what are you saying and then how am I going to take that back. It's what is it expressing compared to my other pieces of, of evidence that I can pool it with. It's no longer treating the person as having personhood. And now, obviously, this has some damage uh, to the person who is being dismissed. Uh, epistemic injustice, uh, which is that credibility and trust uh, deficits or even excesses, um, they could create situations where a speaker might lose their confidence. So what I mean by this is that these people might be less likely to want to contribute. They might think, oh, maybe I'm not actually in as much pain as I thought I was. So I'm just going to remain quiet in this meeting. Maybe I'll talk in like the next one if it's still going on. But for this one, I'm just going to remain quiet and just go with whatever the doctor says. So they've lost their confidence in their own knowledge production abilities. But if this continues, um, several studies have shown both theoretically and practically that um, the loss of epistemic confidence over time can start to lead to the loss of ability to, produ to produce knowledge at all. So if you're continuously dismissed, um, you might just stop saying anything at all. And it's easy, especially in like non or uh, invisible disabilities cases, to say, oh, well, you'll never see that person again. Just brush it off. It'll be fine. Um, don't take what they're saying to heart, things like this. But if you're 
dismissed in a, in a parking lot saying that you don't actually need your blue space. And then you go to the doctor and they dismiss you saying that your chronic pain isn't as bad as you think it is. And then two days later in the grocery store, you're told that you don't actually need the buggy. You can walk because you, don't, you didn't enter the store in a wheelchair or with crutches. That's going to start to add up over time. That's going to start to affect whether or not you actually think that you are sick. Um, so for Layla in the chronic pain case, it might be the case where she starts to say to herself, oh, well, maybe I'm not actually chronically in pain. Maybe this is what life actually is like. And after my surgery, I just was in so much pain. And then I was put on opioids that made all the pain go away that when I was taken off of those, I had just forgotten what real life feels like. So I'm just going to I'm just going to accept that I don't know what I'm talking about and the doctor says that I don't need any more opioids and I'll just live with this. Maybe I'm moving slower, but th that that'll be with something about my back. It's not actually the pain. So she's no longer producing any te any testimony. She's no longer producing any knowledge in this case. She's lost that ability. And as I was saying, this damage is temporal and doesn't necessarily occur immediately. It happens it can happen immediately if it's significant enough or if it's based in enough biases, but usually you're going to see effects over time. So this is the positive part, as positive as it can be. Uh, what do we do about these dismissals? What do we do about this damage? Um, what myself and the very few others who are working on this kind of thing are saying is that we need to start respecting testimony. And that the burden for fixing these dismissals doesn't rest on the patients. It has to rest on the healthcare providers, the policymakers, the researchers like myself to come up with different frameworks that will help the patients because these patients are already dealing with their illnesses. They can't also have to take on the responsibility of changing things. Now sometimes this is what's needed as uh, what I said with the Women's Health Movement and the AIDS ACT UP group in the 70s and 80s um, and as what you're seeing with the disability rights activists in the United States right now um, arguing in Supreme Courts and being thrown out of these buildings um, but it shouldn't rest on these individuals. It should be with the researchers and with those who have some sort of stake in healthcare. And a respect for testimony needs to um, it needs to be seen in the context of evidence-based medicine. Evidence-based medicine doesn't seem to be going anywhere, so a respect for testimony says that testimony needs to be counted as evidence somewhere in this hierarchy, hopefully above that mechanistic reasoning that always gets dismissed, either as an addendum to make it into a different shape or as part of an observational by changing the name observational to something else. It should count as evidence of a, of a quality that actually gets recognition. And respecting testimony, as a final part on this one, it goes further than just simply or passively saying, oh, I hear you. Respecting testimony isn't a uh, passive statement, it's an action. So respecting testimony is not redirecting after 18 seconds. Respecting testimony is going to be letting the person finish conveying what they need to convey, even if it seems entirely irrelevant, even if it seems like they're not credible and not trustworthy. Let them say what, they're sa what they want to say, and that'll help build a trusting relationship between the two, and it'll help see what this person is thinking. And maybe it doesn't relate directly to this in interaction, but if this is for a family physician, uh, it might relate to something that they end up saying a few months down the road when you compare it with their, with their file, 
or for an emergency room or a hospital, it might be something that you then refer them to a mental health facility or to a, a kidney facility because they're saying something that is completely irrelevant to their leg, but seems like it might be a kidney issue, so you relay them on. Um, so it has to be an action that you take instead of just um, saying, I hear you. And this also relates to people outside of hospitals when they interact with people who have illnesses or whatnot. It can't just be saying, I hear you, or I see, or things like that. And then finally, um, this is where I'm going to talk a little briefly about my current research, um, as much as I am allowed to say, since it is being reviewed, and we're not allowed to talk at that point, which sucks. Um, but the first thing is that we need to reevaluate, kind of like what this whole presentation has been saying, we need to reevaluate the role testimony plays in appointments and in diagnosis. So we need to create compelling reasons for healthcare providers, for health policymakers to change what they're doing and incorporate evidence. So it's not saying tear down everything uh, and just listen to the patient. It's saying add what the patient is saying to your pool of evidence that you're using. And related to this, we also need to develop tools for integrating patient testimony into evidence hierarchies. So like that triangle I was drawing in the air at the beginning, we need to somehow find a way to put testimony in there. Or alternatively, what I would prefer, is demolish the hierarchy um, and come up with something new. Maybe it is a new form of hierarchy, or maybe it is some web of interactions. That's where I would like to go. Um, but we need some sort of tool to, after we've given the reasons for why testimony should be included, to then include testimony as evidence. And the final thing, um, this is a pet project of mine, is that we need to rethink the idea that experts are infallible in their fields. Uh, and this does include me. Uh, I am human, just like doctors are human. If someone's having a bad day, either they woke up late or they didn't have their morning coffee, um, they can make mistakes. Now we tend to think that because healthcare is so vital to our well-being, um, it's about our bodies and our lives after all, and because doctors go through so much training, that they, what they say must be right. But even doctors can have bad days. <laughs> yeah. So people need to, and it, people being infallible in other fields doesn't tend to be a problem. So why is it a problem with healthcare? It shouldn't be. Anyway, um, so if you, I didn't, because this isn't an academic presentation, I didn't put sources throughout. But if you are interested, you can email me at waddenjordan at gmail.com. And I would be absolutely happy to continue the conversation, to send you some reading at whatever accessibility, be it institutional access or be it just uh, news media. I'm more than happy to continue afterwards.